and uh, thank you to the church here for being willing to have us on creation. As Chris has said, it's uh, creation research, which is important to get right, actually, because there are other groups, and I won't go into all the details of that, but um, thank you for your um, uh, welcome. Thank you to the elders. Thank you to, uh, to the, the, the church here for their invitation, and we do appreciate it. Nice to pray with Pastor Werner and Pastor Gary earlier and calm as well. Thank you. And also, that was interesting, uh, the, uh, the gentleman who gave the, I didn't know his name, who gave the, uh, was running the communion, and he mentioned about his own testimony from, uh, um, from the uh, issue of the Grand Canyon and how he was uh, most impressed there. Um, that was very interesting because it does... It's something which I've had the privilege of doing as well and seeing that amazing example of God's handiwork, which of course is really, as was said earlier, a demonstration of the flood. And of course it does speak, and I totally agree with that gentleman, of judgment. And of course the only way out of that judgment is through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And uh, so... I just might suggest, if you're willing, that maybe at the other meeting that we're going to have at one o'clock, maybe some sort of um, uh, offering could be taken up for creation research for John Mackay's work. Because I'm here really representing John Mackay's work, but I'll be up to the elders maybe to decide. But it might just be helpful because our expenses in the creation research work uh, John does a lot of travelling, of course I do as well, and it would just help if there was uh, a little bit of an awareness of that, uh, but I'll leave that to the elders to decide, because I know you're having other people join you a little bit later on, so thank you. But I do appreciate the opportunity to come and share with you the truth here in this morning service. Um, I want to show you why creation is important, and I particularly want to say that although it's not a salvation issue, we don't sort of go around saying that a person's got to actually believe in creation in order to be saved. It doesn't happen for me. I actually became a Christian when I first of all understood that Christ had died on the cross for my sins. I realized that I had actually personally uh, gone wrong against God and somebody had actually asked me um, when I was a young man, before I'd gone up to university, I'd all, I, I hadn't yet understood what Christ had done on the cross, and they asked me, are you a Christian? And I said, well, I hope I am. And because I obviously didn't know what a Christian was, I had it explained to me how I personally needed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, how I personally needed to uh, uh, to also uh, believe that he had died for me on the cross, that I had done wrong. I had to admit that I had done wrong. I was told I needed to believe that Jesus died for me and I needed to commit my life to Christ. That was ABC and it made sense. <laughs> well, as soon as I understood that, that night, I actually did just that. I admitted I had done wrong. I believed that Jesus died in my place. And thirdly, I committed my life to Christ. That ABC, admit, believe and commit, is what enabled me to understand as a 16, going on 17 year old, that I needed to get right with God. And once I'd committed my life to Christ, um, the very next day I felt as though I'd had a bath on the inside. I really felt that, you know, I was totally different. Whereas before I tried to read my Bible, it had never made any sense to me. Now I could read my Bible, I wanted to read it, I wanted to pray and I wanted to meet with other Christians. There was evidently a change in my life. But... Um, Though I had understood what a Christian was and now I was a Christian, 
I hadn't yet thought through the issue of creation. And so that's why it's important to realise that we're not going around trying to say that creation is so fundamental that it's a salvation issue. But it's a growth issue. It's a biblical infallibility issue. So a young Christian in particular, but it's true of all of us actually, if we don't know for sure that the Bible really is true in Genesis, then it's a bit like a ship facing an iceberg, which the worst bit is, of course, underneath. It's not the bit on top. It's the bit which is underneath, which is going to be highly dangerous. There are hidden dangers, which you don't see until you're up against them, and you can see that that is a big danger to young Christians. Mixing evolution and Genesis can cause shipwreck and you need to be aware of these dangers. So the big thing is that we need to be teaching systematically in our churches like this one and others. We need to be teaching that Genesis really is a fundamentally important book and that actually the gospel that I've just referred to the essence of it is there in Genesis. Genesis speaks, actually, of sin coming after the fall. Man was made, uh, uh, sorry, sin came at the fall and death came after the fall. It doesn't speak of there being long periods of time with some brutes leading eventually to man, which is what that bottom picture would suggest. Genesis teaches of a perfect world and it teaches that man's sin would be dealt with with that first promise in the proto-gospel as it is sometimes called in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. There would come a day when the gospel would actually be uh, be shown to the world when Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would actually deal with Satan. Now, that's all in Genesis. Now, all that's broken. If, in fact, you say that there wasn't uh, uh, death coming after the result of a, uh, a sinful Adam rebelling against God, if you say death was already there, then you haven't, you've lost the pictures of the gospel which God clearly presents in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis makes it very plain that there was not of uh, some sort of long eons of time leading up to people eventually coming on the scene after billions of years. Now I'm going to show you that the way to understand this is really four major truths which we need to keep to. And I've called these cardinal truths. So this is why creation is fundamentally very important indeed. We need to realise that there is no death, as I've already mentioned before the fall, that creation was by God's spoken word, that Adam was made from dust, not from pre-existing living creatures, and that the flood was global. You might think, for some of you, this is stating the obvious, because, of course, the Bible's very clear on these things. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. But it's surprising, A, how many people don't realise just that these things are clear, and secondly, um, those people who do realise that there is teaching there, they will deny it. And there are organisations which should know better, which have leading evangelical men in them, which are denying this position. And increasingly, in the United States, in England, in Australia here, there is a growing group of evangelicals which has a big sway right across these nations, which is saying that it doesn't really matter about these, matters, these issues. Actually, it does. Even though I've said that 
and I'm at pains to say I don't go around saying that a person who doesn't believe in these matters concerning a young earth, which is the position we're taking, it's not for me to go around saying that that person's not a Christian, but it is nevertheless a very serious thing to do once you've understood that the Bible really does teach that there is such thing as a young earth. There is a global flood that Adam was made from dust, not from pre-existing creatures. You see, when I first became aware of this, it was, it was at university, and somebody said to me, Andy, have you read this book? And I hadn't. And it was the Genesis Flood. There was another book, The Early Earth and the World That Perished. Both of them, all of them by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. And these were the books which had a big influence on me. Once I'd read them and realised that these these were books dealing with the Bible and not actually in any way were they uh, doing other than simply saying what the Bible said. I accepted them. It was not that I hadn't believed it before because I'd rejected it. It's just I hadn't understood it. Now I did understand it and I realised how significant it was. And I trust that you as a church also see its significance in each of these points. Now, why is no death before the fall um, easily provable? Because I'm saying all these four points are easily provable. I'll come to the matter of the days uh, towards the end. But if I could just show you first that these four points are easily provable. You You don't need to actually have lots, lots and lots of Bible knowledge to actually come to these points most of us who've read the Bible through, and I would recommend you do that, will see that the Bible is very clear on these matters of no death before the fall. Romans 6, we all probably have been taught it when we first became a Christian. For the wages of sin is death. It's not the other way around. It's not that death was already there and that, you know, that... uh, that that somehow there was now going to be some other wages. No, the wages of sin is death. There was no death before the fall. And of course, the gift of God, the answer to that awful dilemma that we face because we have sinned against God, is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A cartoon sometimes says everything, And it's helpful to have this concept in your mind that evolution teaches that bloodshed, suffering and disease has been going on quite incorrectly. It's saying for millions of years until man comes onto the scene. Now is that what we really believe? We know that the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that man's actions brought death. So, the very essence of the gospel is connected with this. This is why Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. If, in fact, man was not responsible for bringing physical death into the world, then you might well ask the question, which is a pretty fundamental question, why did Jesus Christ die on the cross anyway? If man didn't bring physical death into the world, why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? Do you see the issue now? So, although I've said earlier that, yeah, um, I'm not going to go around pointing at people who haven't yet grasped this issue and try to uh, say that, you know, Romans 10 and 9 does not say that creation is part of the prerequisites to be saved. And it's true, Romans 10 and 9 doesn't say that. It says, if you believe in your heart and that God has raised and testified with your lips that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, you shall be saved. But having said that, we know that the essence of the gospel is strongly connected with what happened in Genesis. And here we are in Romans, where it makes it very plain that the... The, the gospel is predicated on Genesis. Now when we actually look at Genesis, we haven't actually read it, but in Genesis chapter 1 you know that it 
goes through the days very simply in narrative form and it says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And it says it was good. Then it speaks of the land and the seas, uh, the land and the sea in verse 10 and it says it was good. It speaks of the plants and the trees and it was good. The light bearers on day four, that's the sun, moon and the stars, it was good. <coughs> and then the fish and the birds on day five, it was good. And then the land animals and it was good. And then it says God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Now, God is saying everything that he had made, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Interestingly, it's seven times and seven is always the number of perfection. God looks at everything and he says, it is good. There is no room here for any evil, anything out of place. There was no death. And of course, this is referred to both in Romans 6, which we mentioned earlier, but now I turn you to 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Everything is predicated on Adam bringing death and Christ bringing life. So, Genesis chapter 1 is the foundation of the Gospel and it's telling us in no uncertain terms that there is everything perfectly in place. That also means, as I understand it, that there was no animal death either. That there was no animals preying on one another. It doesn't mean that there was no plant death. So, you know, plants are not made in the same way as animals. Yes, there is DNA in them, and that's how we can end up eating plants. But there is nothing, there's nothing which is to be regarded in plants as somehow not to be uh, nature to be regarded red in tooth and claw. When you actually pounce on an apple, it doesn't scream at you or, <laughs> or run away from you. It was there for our benefit. Fruit and vegetables have always been there <coughs> that we might feed on them. But it's quite different with animals. Genesis 1 verse 30 says that everything in there is life and that's the word nefesh used there. He has given uh, plants and food, uh, uh, vegetables to eat. So Genesis 1 verse 30 is actually telling us that we were essentially vegetarian in the past. So what is the biblical teaching then on the origin of death? Well, the first mention of this is in Genesis 2 before man fell. And it says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall eat of it, but in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that's exactly what did happen in Genesis 3. Man fell, and God told Adam that he would go back to the dust. Eve took of the fruit, and we know that terribly sad story in Genesis 3, which tells us that death had now come into the world as God said it would if in fact man disobeyed. Perhaps where it really begins to become clear is at the gospel where Jesus, uh, so at the cross where Jesus dies. When Jesus is on the cross, we realise that there is a double aspect to death. Revelation 20 actually specifically refers to the second death. 
as indeed Revelation 21 does as well, implying, of course, that there is a first death. The second death is the, the place of eternal punishment of which there is no escape. That's in Revelation 20. And when we come to the cross where Jesus died, if I just pull up these, uh, these scriptures here, not that I'm going to refer to them all in detail, but I just refer you to the cross because it's when you see the cross in sharp focus, you then see how significant the teaching throughout the whole of the Bible is because everything comes together at the cross. As I mentioned in Revelation 20, there is no doubt that there are two deaths in Scripture. Death is separation. The second death is a dreadful state to be in because you are separated from God the Father forever and ever and ever. The first death is separation of body and spirit. They're both here at the cross. Jesus, in those first few hours on the cross, in the light, speaks to people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He speaks to John to care for his mother. A woman, he says, behold your son. He speaks to the thief on the cross next to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise when one of them turns and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has gone on to the cross at, um, <coughs> at essentially the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning roughly. And in those first three hours there is conversations going on from the cross, which is why I don't think it was in any way an, on the hill far away. It was actually close by. So much so that people could speak to him and taunt him and actually speak against him and say, if you're the Christ, come off the cross. It was the practice of the Romans anyway to crucify their criminals in a thoroughfare. If you ever saw the film, not that I particularly want to watch it all and wouldn't recommend you watch it all, but you may have seen, heard of the film Spartacus where, you know, the, 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 the rebellion against Rome is finally dealt with as Spartacus is put on the cross. And as is typical, as I say, of the Romans at that time, these brutal crucifixions were done in thoroughfares to saying that's what happens to you if you disobey the power of Rome. Jesus would have been put on a cross with the two others in a thoroughfare. That was their practice. Many people think that it was probably near where what now is Jerusalem bus station. I don't think it was anywhere near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre but that's my personal view. If you go to Jerusalem... I think there's a lot of uh, wrong talk about the cross. The cross would have been in a major thoroughfare. And Jesus was there speaking with people, as I've indicated, but he was on the cross for six hours. And then it says, at the ninth hour in Mark 15, and it, uh, that is right at the end of the six hours. But at the sixth hour, the sun went out. So when you put all this together, as you can see in the middle here, I've just been uh, summarising it uh, verbally, but when you actually go through this, you can see that for th the implication is that for the second three hours, it was total darkness, and Jesus was basically saying very little, if anything at all. All the last four sayings are said, one after the other at the ninth hour, which really draws attention to the force of what's being said. He says, first, in these last four sayings, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on then? 
is taking my personal guilt upon himself or has done so for those three hours. He's now at the end of those three hours and he's crying out, fulfilling Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's separated from his father, never to, be happen, never to happen again. But by happening once, he did it once for all for me. He then says, I thirst, and takes of the vinegar which earlier he had refused because he wasn't going to uh, have the pain subdued. Now, he's got to the end of doing this amazing act of uh, atonement for us. And he accepts that. And he cries out, it is finished. One word in the Greek, tetelesti. He'd completed the work which God had given him to do. In which case you could have said, well, why didn't he just get off the cross? Because he had to go through physical death as well. The penalty for sin was not just spiritual separation from God on the cross, which is, of course, what was the awful thing. He effectively endured on the cross in three hours what would have taken me an eternity in hell itself. He endured in his own body on that cross what would have taken me an eternity in hell. But now, he says, it is finished, complete. And he's dealt with my sin. Why doesn't he get off the cross? He says at one point, do you not realise I could have called legions of angels? But he controlled all the events of the cross. He was even controlling the molecules of the <clears throat> nails going into his hands and his feet, giving, controlling the breath of his persecutors, sustaining Andromeda in space and all the other galaxies. He was the one in control of all events. He controls the day that he will die, which of course is this day, but the hour. And he says, no man takes it from me. I lay down my life and I take it again. You see, the Romans didn't control him. The Jews didn't control him. He now says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And it says in John 19, verse 30, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Or he bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. He was actively controlling all the events. And so when Christ physically died, why was he doing that? Because that was part of the penalty for sin. That reflects on the Garden of Eden which not only had a spiritual separation, immediately Adam and Eve sinned, because they ran and hid, and God calls to them and says, Adam, where are you? Which is the second recorded question in the Bible. The first one, of course, was the devil who said, has God said? Here's God, knowing full well where Adam is. He says, Adam, where are you? And he calls to the whole of mankind, where are you? And spiritually, there was immediate separation from God. But physically, 900 odd years later, Adam dies. Christ now takes the physical penalty for sin, which includes physical death, physical separation of his own body from his spirit. His body didn't rot in the tomb, but the reason he went through physical death was that you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, would actually have a right to a new physical body when Christ returns again, as he will in glory, and you will have a resurrection body. Everything is connected together with Genesis. Genesis is where it all goes wrong, and it tells you how it goes wrong. Physical death and spiritual death come in. But in the same way, Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 clearly teaches, brings life. And he is resurrected because 
he is resurrected, he is the first fruits of them that slept. We are resurrected as well. This is just a wonderful truth. Now this is the most important point theologically as to why we cannot have evolution and the Bible and Genesis. And I'm not going to say who the people are, but there are leading evangelicals today. People whose books, young people in particular, are avidly reading. And you can see that it has an enormous effect upon us. If we don't teach in our churches against this error which has come in, then you're going to find that people are going to be swept into the wrong camp on this issue of creation. And I would encourage you to, to, to get the books, to get the materials that John Mackay provides. We have some with us. And I would encourage you to actually get the prayer letter of John Mackay and to, to get creation materials, lest you have young people in particular going off into college, getting caught up in a Christian union which doesn't understand these issues of the importance of creation and before you know where you are, they are actually believing in what we call theistic evolution, God using evolution. If you're studying science, I will deal a bit with that in my second talk, but really the science doesn't support the evolutionary model. The evolution position is actually a religion. So look, 1 Corinthians 15, remember I said, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in, Christ, as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall be made alive. We come now to the second point, which is this one, that creation is by God's word. <coughs> now, we know that God spoke everything into existence. It's recorded in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was so. God said, let the dry land appear. And it was so and so forth. We go on all the way through Genesis 1. But the question is, who is doing the speaking and how long is it taking? Because those who would have us believe that God used evolution would say, ah, oh, well, there's no indication here of time. Actually, they're wrong. There is every indication of brevity of time. Because we know who is speaking. We know from Genesis, yes, but we also know from Colossians chapter 1 that the person who is doing the speaking is the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of him, it says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, uh, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And it then goes on to say in verse 18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus Christ is the preeminent person of the Trinity. That does not mean to the exclusion of God the Father or to the exclusion of God the Holy Spirit. We don't separate the Trinity. But when Jesus Christ was actually <coughs> um, uh, speaking, it was not that God the Father wasn't speaking or God the Holy Spirit, because it says God the Holy Spirit was brooding upon the face of the waters in verse 3 of Genesis 1. We also have, let us make man in our image in Genesis 1 verse 27. So we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is seen, God the Father, is there as well. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the full expression of the Father. So Jesus Christ, whenever he is seen by the disciples, he said on one occasion to Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 
So, we just don't want to give the impression here that we're saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow, you know, separated from the other two parts of the Godhead. No, you don't separate the Godhead. God is one, but three persons. That's the way to understand. Now, having understood that Jesus Christ is the preeminent person, both, by the way, in creation and, of course, in redemption, and when we've understood that creation is by the word of God, now we come back to Genesis chapter 1. We just briefly mentioned John 1 as well, which isn't on the screen, which says that without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrew, uh, John 1 verse 3. That when you have those verses in mind, now you come to Genesis 1, what's the conclusion? That actually... You're dealing here with Christ speaking. And when we now look at the same person with the same agency 2,000 years ago, we know how long it took for the Lord Jesus Christ to do some of these miracles. I've just put one or two of them up here, three, three of them. But... When we have, for instance, the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 4, calming the storm, how many millions of years did it take for the Lord Jesus to calm the Lake of Galilee? Or how many millions of seconds, if you're going to go for seconds? You know that it took no time at all. It was over in a moment. One which I haven't got up there, but John chapter 11, when Jesus Christ was... Uh, saying to Lazarus to come out of the grave. Lazarus, a dead man is called. And Lazarus has to get up. He's dead, but he gets up. And there isn't even time to take the stuff off from the wrappings around his body. He must obey as a dead man what the Lord Jesus Christ has said. And there is coming a day when all the graves will open. And when people say, well, if Jesus had not said Lazarus, all the graves could have opened, actually that will happen. Because Jesus said specifically Lazarus, it stopped all the other graves opening. Because it will happen. And there will be a day of general resurrection those who've done good to eternal life and those who've done wickedness will be resurrected to damnation. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God when he calls even those who've been dead many, many decades, many centuries, will have to obey his voice. So when we actually see these miracles and see that Jesus, deity, is, is there and speaking. There is no time at all. There is instant obedience. So now come with me to Genesis chapter 1. The conclusion then is not that there is a long period of time. It's actually instantaneous. It's got to be. Jesus speaks light into existence. And my conviction is it wasn't just light. I can't prove this, but I think it was the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum that God made electromagnetism on the first day. And that it was much deeper than people realise. It's not just starlight, as I understand it. I think he's making the whole of electromagnetism. Clearly, it's light. But do we need actually to have the sun, to have light? The answer is no. Because Christ clearly demonstrated his presence on the Mount of Transfiguration as deity when he shone. And he shone on Matthew, in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Not with the sun and the moon. He shone with his own glory. And I think we need to get a grip, friends, those of people who try to say, oh, that, you know, God somehow required the sun and the moon to be already there. No, he didn't. 
God is not subject to his own creation. Let me just bring you a third point, and that's this. That Adam was made from dust. He wasn't made from pre-existing living material. (laughs) Some people try to say that Adam was made from some pre-existing brute, you know, which came down from the trees over millions of years. Well, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches very plainly that let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And Genesis 2 amplifies it. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed unto his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Man, soul and body, was made in God's image. We know that we are different to the animals. We're made with the breath of life. And of course, woman was made from pre-existing living material. She was made from man, which of course is counter to what all natural ideas would say, which would of course always have the male and the female gradually emerging together and evolving over millions of years. They have a big problem of course because in that they want to evolve some sort of brute which is gradually becoming human, they've got to evolve some sort of female brute as well which is gradually becoming human. The whole thing is nonsense and doesn't actually fit with what the Bible says in any way, shape or form. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 makes it abundantly plain what happened. We couldn't have it clearer. Genesis 2 is really a magnifying glass on verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. Interestingly, it uses the word day in a different way that we're going to be summarising its use in Genesis 1 in a moment. But in Genesis 2 it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, which is an illustration of the use of the word day without it meaning a 24-hour day. Here it is in Genesis 2. It means in the period when they were created because there's no evening and morning and there is no reference just at this point to a, a, a number But it says that the Lord God took the rib which the Lord God had taken from man and from that he made a woman. And of course 1 Timothy 2 says Adam was first formed, then Eve. A whole doctrine concerning male leadership, particularly in the church, is actually built up round um, Genesis 2. Male and female created he them in Genesis 1 is amplified for us in Genesis 2. And 1 Timothy 2 clearly shows that the Apostle Paul accepted the historicity of the creation of not just man but woman. So how do we know that man was not made from pre-existing brutes which are gradually come onto the scene, a well-known evangelical, I'm not going to name him, but he said something like this, that he had no real issue with the fact that God may have taken some sort of slow, long, uh, long period of time of creatures which would be homo this and homo that, and then eventually along comes someone, something which looks very very much like man and he would call that homo divinus and he was a very well known leading evangelical man and before he died he wrote this and it's led many people astray now we are living in very sad days in the evangelical church where people are not standing up to be counted on this issue Other leading men around today who should know better are saying that God used evolution. We need to stand up, friends. We need to 
have in our evangelical churches clear trumpet calls to our young people. Yes, it will mean cost when they stand up in the university and say, um, you know, that they cannot, they don't agree with the evolutionary uh, position. And not just in the university. What is so saddening is that they will have to stand up in their Christian unions and say, that is incorrect, we cannot teach that. We need to have a new generation of believers who are prepared to be missionaries to our own universities. Maybe some of you are working at the University of Melbourne or the or Monash University here. And actually, you already know that I'm touching on a nerve here. Well, I call you to stand firm and to stand firm in your discipline and to graciously stand against the error, not in what known liberalism, but errors in the evangelical union of students which is going on today. We call it the UCCF in England, but, you know, I'm afraid there's a huge amount of compromise. And you have well-known evangelicals in Australia who have belittled the issue of creation and it's doing a huge amount of damage. Look, friends, we know from Genesis 3, verse 19, if you just want one verse which shows you that you cannot have Adam made from pre-existing living material, it says, Dust you are, Adam, in Genesis 3, verse 19, unto dust you will return. It's clearly referring to the fact that you were taken from dust, literally, Adam, and you're going back to dust. We know what it is, that when we, when we finally die, we go to dust. And God is emphasising that you were made from dust, Adam. Well, there's one last point, and that's this, that the flood was global. Now, this one is, even though it's the last one, it's probably the one which is most disagreed with. You'll get some evangelical organisations which will say, okay, well, we don't, we don't agree on the age of the earth and all these issues, but we'll at least say that there was a real Adam, right? So we'll have meetings of evangelical theological society and they say, well, the, the one thing we'll all agree on is that there really was an Adam. Actually, even that one, of course, is disputed strongly in the evangelical world. But, sadly, people will not agree on the flood being global. But, of course, the flood being global opens up the science. And you suddenly realise that the science really does make sense. How do we know that the flood was global? Well, it says in Genesis 7 the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So everything was covered with water. Genesis 7 tells you that should be enough. But actually there's many other verses which show to us that that really must be the case. If it says that the whole heaven, the hills under the whole heaven were covered, you can't then have a basin of water which has got all the, 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 the mountains covered within that basin, because at the edge, of course, you've got mountains which aren't covered. So it would be uh, not in agreement with that very verse. You also can't have a wall of water at the edge. So a local flood is actually not going to make sense of the basic reading of Genesis 7 anyway. What's the point of building an ark when all you had to do was to simply move anyway? Probably, though, the verse which really makes it plain is the rainbow promise after the flood. Genesis 9, it says, I'm going to set my bow in the cloud and it should be a token for a covenant between me and the earth and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So, when we see that there have been major disasters like December the 26th, 2004, when... <coughs> <coughs> when there was an earthquake underneath the Indian Ocean and it caused a quarter of a million people to die in one day 
then you'd say, well, God has broken his promise if in fact he said that there would never be a local flood again. Or in Sendai in 2011, when again another tsunami swept through into that port in Japan. If the flood was local, then can the rainbow promise be honoured? And the answer is, of course it can't. The rainbow promise only makes sense that there will never be a global flood again. What's the implication? God meant exactly what he said. We don't need to interpret God's word with our own thinking. His own word actually will sometimes interpret it where there is issues. And, but in the main, its clarity is as plain as the nose on your face, to be frank. And it's our willfulness which says that we will not believe it. Genesis 9 makes it abundantly plain that there really was a worldwide flood. It also says in Genesis 7 that 15 cubits above. It actually talks about the height of the water above the highest mountain. People mock at us and say, well, where did all that water come from? Well, if you read carefully the scriptures, it says the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The fountains of the great deep are probably linked with the breaking up of the earth's crust and the tectonic plates which now would seem to have broken up such that um, if you look on a world map um, the Americas do seem to fit into, back into Europe. If you look at a world map there it does actually strongly suggest that there is a breaking up of the earth's crust. Now, the Bible doesn't tell me expressly that the earth's crust was broken up, but everything suggests that there was a fast, moving, fast movement of the earth's crust and that towards the end of the flood year, these crustal movements then pushed against one another such that India rammed against the Eurasian plates and the mountains which we have now, which are huge in the Himalayas, in the Alps, in the Andes, in the Rocky Mountains, that these were all pushed up towards the end of the worldwide flood. This then begins to make sense of the, the, the Earth's crust that we have today. Probably another scripture which really makes this plain is Luke 17 where it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the day, in the day of the Son of Man. Christ is coming back just to one part of the world? No. Is he just coming back to Jerusalem? Well, praise God, he is. But is it just to Jerusalem? No. He's coming back to the whole world. Well, in exactly the same way, because of the words of Christ in Luke 17, it means that in Noah's time, it was the world flood. It was everybody who was outside the ark perished, as it says. The flood came and destroyed them all. Not just some of them, all of them. So the issue really is judgment. That's why people don't like this. And I'm talking here about evangelical Christians not liking this issue. They don't like the thoughts that they don't have control of the science, that they cannot look at the rocks as being long periods of time, that the rocks actually are illustrations of God's judgment. And that's, of course, why people in the world don't like it, but sadly even Christians are pushing against this idea. Now, I did say I'd end on the implications of these four truths. You see, once you have these four truths in place, do you see, really, there's no room for any theistic evolution, God using evolution. Once you say that creation must mean that there was no death before the fall, and that's a very, very important point, right? No death, physical or spiritual, before the fall. Once you say that creation was by God's spoken word with an immediate effect, once you say that Adam was made literally from dust with no pre-existing living material, 
Once you say that there was a worldwide flood, once you've got those four tent pegs in place, as it were, there is no room for any evolutionary ideas. But even if you thought that there was, it actually makes it very plain that the days in Genesis 1 exegetically have to mean a 24-hour day. Remember I mentioned that a day in Genesis 2 verse 4 just simply means the period when the creation took place. But this is in Genesis 1 now. You've got the word yom with evening and morning. You've got the word yom with a number, day number 1. And it reads actually very much like this happened, that happened, day 1. Then it's this happened, that happened, day number two. And it is very much uh, emphasizing the number as God is recording what happened on each of the days. But it's also saying evening and morning. So there is two reasons why actually that word day has to mean an ordinary 24-hour day. The day is uh, 24 hours we just note, though, just in passing, that although people have tried to argue that Genesis is uh, uh, poetry, it's not. It's actually historical narrative, right? There is some examples of repetition. In verse 27, there is an example of repetition. Male and female created he them. But actually, in the main, Genesis 1 is simply ordinary narrative. And it can mean, the word yom can, as I've just mentioned earlier, you can have it meaning an indefinite part of the the day, but it's not that here for the following reasons. Because, um, if I could just, uh, uh, just, just show you why that isn't the case, because here in Genesis 1, the context shows us that it's evening and morning. And whenever you've got an evening and morning, it always means a 24-hour day. Whenever you've got a number, that is first day, second day, it always means a 24-hour day. Just so you've got some example of this in your minds, in 1 Samuel 17, it says that Goliath got up evening and morning, or morning and evening, at the beginning of the day and then at the end of the day, he challenged the nation of Israel to a fight. And it actually says that he got up evening and morning for 40 days until obviously the last day he lost his head. But uh, this is, this, this is a, a clear example where because it says evening and morning and because it says he did it for 40 days, it clearly does mean an ordinary solar day. So friends, we know that the days are literally 24-hour days. We also have, of course, Exodus 20, where it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. So the very fact that we keep the Lord's day Uh, is because Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We now keep Sunday. But the the Jews in their day kept the seventh day. And they did it because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Well, there's no way around that, that the Lord is saying he made the world in six 24-hour days, or the heavens and the earth, and then rested the seventh day. So you you can't get round the obvious implications. People have problems by, by, as I mentioned earlier, by saying, well, what happened to all the light then? You know, where's that light coming from? It was made on the fourth day. And they said, well, where was the light then on the first three days? Well, as I've said earlier to you, that there is no problem in having that light on the first three days. Because the Lord Jesus does not require the sun and the moon to shine. 
I mentioned in Matthew 17 that the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration did not require the sun and the moon to shine. And in Revelation 21, there is no need of the sun there, it says, for the Lamb is the light of that place. So we don't need this idea of people saying, ah, well, there was some sort of covering and the stars weren't yet visible. Yeah, that is nonsense. God made those stars on the fourth day. He then stretched the heavens and had the stars in those heavens on the fourth day. We're not sure what all that means, but the word stretching the heavens occurs all the way through the Old Testament. Let me just bring up one last objection people have. And that's, what about 2 Peter 3a, Andy? Surely this answers everything. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Gotcha. Have they? It doesn't say that a thousand years equals one day. It just simply says that God is outside time. Psalm 90 which is also written by Moses, it's the only psalm that we have recorded by Moses, says, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So 2 Peter 3 has nothing to do with expounding the word day. It's simply saying, hold on Christians, God knows the end from the beginning. So 2 Peter 3.8 is gives you no warrant for saying that a day equals a thousand years. If you were to do that, what would you do with poor old Joshua going round Jericho? Give him a break. You know, is he going to take a thousand years to go round the first time and then a thousand years to go round the next time? And what are you going to do with poor old Jonah? Is he going to be three thousand years in the whale? You've got some real issues of, of exegesis of the word uh, years as well as the word day. And just to end with, people need to realise, of course, that once you have those four doctrines that I've been mentioning, and they are the important ones in place, you then see that there is another issue, which is not now the word days, what, We're saying that it's a creation, ordinary creation week, that it was six literal days. But now I'm seeking to show you that the Bible has a wonderful timeline all the way through it, which is very, very striking and is unique to the Bible. There is no other religious writing. Islam hasn't got it. Hinduism hasn't got it. Confucianism hasn't got it. Buddhism hasn't got it. There is no other religious writing which has a timeline which goes from the beginning in an ordered way right through to the end. Basically tells the Jews obviously where they're from but it also tells the Gentiles where they are from and then it points us all to the fact that there is a judgment to come. Roughly from Adam, the creation of Adam, to the birth of Noah is about a thousand years. From the birth of Noah to Abraham is another thousand years. Abraham to David is another thousand years. David to Christ is another thousand years. Christ is two thousand years ago. So although we're not going to you know, say that Bishop Usher has to be right on the 23rd of October, whenever it was, BC 4004, you know, creation took place. We're we're not obviously going to that extreme because the Bible doesn't speak in those terms. But in terms of the overall position as to when creation took place, we are entirely within our rights to say that the Bible, in fact, not not just within our rights, that the Bible does teach a 6,000-year-old world of that order of magnitude and that the flood, 
which was in the 600th year of Noah's life, was of the order of 4,500 years ago. When you have that in place, you think, oh, that's off the wall, that cannot be true. Actually, everything fits. Because the population of the world, I showed this to people yesterday, and I always, people are always interested in this when they see this. The population of the world today is just over 7 billion. The population at the time when we were fighting the Second World War was about 2.5 billion. The population at the time of the, um, the Napoleon time uh, was about 1 billion. The population at the time of the English Civil War was about half a billion. And the population at the time of Christ is under half a billion. And it's, everything is telling you, as you look at the tail going backwards, that it's of the order of a few thousand years that we've been here. Nothing affects it very much in terms of wars. It's, it's inexorably about 2% increase per year. That 2% increase can be wound back, and that's what gives you that graph. People who argue for evolution will have to say that they believe that the world population uh, is actually uh, of the order of 200,000 years since humans came onto the scene. In which case, we would be just... We, we would be... If we were to take 2% per year for 200,000 years or even 100,000 years while you know, evolution sorts itself out, you would just have such a gigantic population that you wouldn't know where to look to breathe. Everything is telling you that the world population is consistent with us coming out of the ark of the order of 4,500 years ago. If you break what I was saying earlier and have eons of prehistory, you break God's clock of history. And the timeline no longer connects us back to Adam and the fall and redemption. I know I've given you a grand overview of history from this biblical talk that I've been giving you this morning. But I feel it's utterly necessary because I want you to see that creation is a major issue. If you start saying that God used evolution and then you start trying to teach about Adam, the young people have no concept as to how long ago Adam was. According to what the Bible says, the number of generations which takes us back to Noah is about 150 generations. I don't know whether you do your family trees. I bet nobody's got them back to within a grasping distance of Noah. It's very difficult to do it. But that's roughly where all of us go back to. Every one of us goes back to Noah in about 150 generations. It doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is. We're all descended from Noah's family and from that eight group of eight people. It takes 200 generations to get you back to Adam. Now do you see how that verse comes to life? For as in Adam all die, I was in Adam 200 generations ago, rebelling against God. But praise God that I have a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved me. Now do you see that the force of the gospel is underlined, is brought into sharp focus when you believe in Genesis in the way that I've been describing. May God bless you all.